But the real issue is, what's the trauma that's causing this? And there are some traumas that have to be acknowledged. And I think that's what's happening right now, is we're starting to have a deeper conversation about what is it like to be a woman in America today? Welcome to the HGW Podcast. We're your hosts, Zoe Sakutis and Erica Huss, founders of Blueprint Cleanse, the iconic juice brand that sparked a multi-billion dollar category. We bootstrapped, scaled, and sold, and now we're moving on. We put down the juicer and picked up the mic to start a conversation. We'll bring you behind-the-scenes information on leading brands and emerging ideas in this rapidly evolving world of wellness. Every Wednesday, we chat with experts or entrepreneurs who help us cut through the noise and bring you information you can actually use. No shaming, no guilt, just the cold-pressed truth about real ways you can feel better, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And bonus, we even share our often humiliating personal experiences, all in the name of your wellness journey. Clinical studies have shown that writing five-star reviews improves mood and circulation. So if you like what you hear, give us some love and share with a friend. Often irreverent and occasionally intuitive, consider us your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. How's it going, Z? Good, good. How are you? Fine. Mm-hmm. 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 What, what's, what's new with you? I was just, you know, enjoying my new prescription glasses. Oh, huh. yeah. It's about that time, huh? Yeah. You, you your, mean an age? You got like your age dilate? Well, it's about that time in our, in our life conversation right. where we start talking about our new prescriptions. Right. Because, yes, you hit a certain age. <laughs> I've always prided myself on having 2020, and um, I went and got my eye exam yesterday. And I told her the same thing. I was like, I've, I've I was like, I've never had a cavity and I've always had 2020. She's like, well, I hate to tell you, but you probably haven't always had 2020. You just haven't gotten to the point where it's been bad enough to get a prescription yet because your muscles have been straining and compensating probably for okay, the past fine, fair. few years at least. Mm-hmm. So therefore you haven't had 2020 for at least the past So year. she was really catching you on a technicality because yeah. you've had 2020 longer than you haven't. Yeah. I'm she's the same like, way. I had perfect vision my entire life until like, maybe like an hour ago and now I can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, it's really annoying. It's not crazy, but I definitely do have to wear glasses. And I was like, so I, it was a, a new prescription. I upped it. My eyesight definitely got worse. And then she was like, so, you know, you just have to wear these like when you're behind your computer or reading a book or like doing anything for long stretches of time, like, like uh, driving a car, or watching a movie. I was like, okay, so basically like I have to wear these when I'm not sleeping. When you're alive and- Right, when I'm awake. Walking, yes. <laughs> and so that was, uh, but it's fine. You know what? I'm going to think about it in a way that is just like, so when I was younger, I thought glasses were just like, I was jealous because all my siblings had glasses mm-hmm. and I thought it was a cool accessory sure. and an opportunity to accessorize. Sure. And even into adulthood, I was like, oh, I love like certain glasses on people. It really like makes them look better. And now that I'm of a certain age, it's like, I think I passed that point where now it's more of just an indicator of aging for me because <laughs> yeah. now I'm just... Well, it is a very, now it's a very right. flagrant and obvious example of a shortcoming. At this you know? age, yeah. Yes. At this age, it's more like people aren't like, oh, look at you sassy pants in your, your right. fun it's frames. Like, it's like, oh, what happened? Oh, your eyesight's going, huh? Oh, had another birthday, <laughs> didn't you? He's like, okay, mom. And now you're holding your stomach when you're yeah. in your scar when I you know, laugh. I so. know, I know. Oh, boy. But I'm trying to change the way I think about it. I'm still going to just 
think of it as an accessory and I'm going to get like 50 different shades and just whoop it up. 50 shades of age. Oh, boom, up high, <laughs> up top. Okay, so on that note, uh-huh. a positive is that I have been able to like read for longer stretches of time. Mm-hmm. So what you've been reading. So I hold in my hand a yes. book called Claim Your Power by Mastin Kip, who is a functional life coach. And we sat down with him the other day and had a lovely conversation. Yeah. He's got he's he's got a huge following. He's kind of created this practice, I think based on the disciplines of other coaches that he's worked with and um, his own experiences over the years. He he went through um, some substance addiction, uh, drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol, and now he is sober and he coaches other people and well, I think you were going to share a reading. Well, I think the best way to just describe what he does, I mean, he talks about trauma, right, a lot and how pretty much the root of all of our issues, all of our problems, all of our hangups, all of our triggers, all of our emotional, you know, issues are rooted in trauma. And if we could just do that work and get down to the trauma level... And it doesn't have to be major trauma, by the way. I mean, I think no, there's like it doesn't a big have to be spectrum. like I was, you know, molested or raped or beat or it could, you know, trauma is many different things sure. to many different people, and we all experience it in 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 varying ways. So, but so he's he speaks about it in a way that is sort of like I, I guess how people were speaking about meditation like 15 years ago, right? So he seems a little ahead of his time on that front, but he has a lot of great insights, and his book. Starts with a quote, which I think kind of sets up his book very nicely and gives you like a nice idea of what it's about. And it literally says, read this first. So I'll read you this quote because it's a really good one. Do you need your glasses? And it's not by him. I'll tell you it's by a minute. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to read it with my glasses. You may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. Try to be a rainbow in someone else's cloud. Do not complain. Make every effort to change things you do not like. If you cannot make a change, change the way you have been thinking. You might find a new solution. I love all of that. Maya Angelou. Of course it is. Obviously. But right? I subscribe to all of that. All of it. 100%. Every sentence is like, yes, that that will make everything better. Yes. It's all about changing the way that you respond to things. He goes as far as talking about how you even just changing your energy Basically, you can change your entire, you can change your life. You can change the outcome of situations by just changing the way that you respond to things. Yeah. So. Anyway, so I, yeah, so I just read that. I'm like, I'm not going to think about my glasses as an aging thing. I'm going to change the way I think about them and look at them as an as additive. Sure. I'm okay. going to be a rainbow in your cloud. Please do. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, so this is a, he was a great, he, he was a great guest and we loved, we loved chatting with Mastin yeah. and we want to have him back. Anyway, have a listen, Mastin. Thank you. So we are here with Mastin Kip. Hi. Hi. Author, entrepreneur, inspirational speaker. Creator, author, and creator of functional life coaching. And guy sitting in your living room right now. And guy <laughs> sitting in the, what is this room? What do we call this I room? I like to say the annex. The, an- the annex. annex. Okay. I know. All right. It's I'll take cool it. Annex. The, <laughs> the um, top floor. <laughs> some people call him Jesus, but Oprah. No, no, no. 
actually uh, referred to him as uh, up and coming thought leader of the next generation of spiritual thinkers. So that's not, you know. It's all just too much pressure, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, I mean, when Oprah's giving you some some credentials. Yeah, you're like, girl. I mean, when Oprah's even like looking your way, I yeah. think it's pretty. I remember the first time I heard her say my name, I almost died. I was like, what? <laughs> that is, those two worlds. You can see me? That's weird. That's yeah. amazing though. Congratulations. It's obviously been such oh, an yeah. enormous journey for it, you. It's funny because as of the recording of this podcast today, uh, on my Facebook timeline, I posted a picture of me and Gabby and Marie. And that was ten, uh, seven years ago today. That, that interview like, you guys did with Oprah? Yeah, and I was like, that was seven years wow. ago. Wow. Doesn't That's so like interesting. It. Well, happy anniversary. Yeah, it was really cool. It was super special. <laughs> That's pretty so. exciting. It was exciting. And I still don't remember the interview, actually. I think I blocked it out. It was just so intense. I was like, I don't know what I said. <laughs> you were traumatized. <laughs> you were I was traumatized. traumatized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, so speaking of trauma, I think that's that's a big that's a big theme for for the work that you do. You talk about yeah. how you're kind of a trauma hacker, right? That's, yeah, that's kind of your approach. Before we get to that, because there's a million questions, but we kind of would love to just hear your story and how you arrived at the work that you do now and and where you've been. Sure, it's certainly been yeah. a journey for you. Uh, yeah, and the other thing uh, before I share my story, just very briefly. When someone, especially for the first time, hears the word trauma, they usually it's not like, yes, I can't wait to talk about this. Right. You know. But the reason why we talk about trauma is because if you want to get your goals, whether it's weight loss, relationships, finances, business, whatever, it's the trauma that's blocking you. And it's tra- trauma isn't just like the big stuff, like the, the assaults and things like that, which it certainly is. That's like capital T trauma. There's so many different types of it. So I just want to like kind of say that as a hook so people go, oh, there's maybe some purpose in talking about this and it's sure. not going to be all dark and gloomy and stuff. It's actually a really awesome topic to talk about, very illuminating. So hopefully that'll be like a little bit of like a hook so we can keep listening to the conversation and not <laughs> yeah, be like, I'm sure. here because of trauma, you know? So, but you know, for me, I grew up as a patient advocate. We were just talking about this a little bit earlier from the womb, basically, because my mom had a broken back. I wasn't supposed to be born. She wasn't supposed to have a kid. She broke her back when she was a teenager riding horses. And uh, she has been rucking what the doctors have told her for her entire life, basically. Mm-hmm. So she had me. Uh, she got worse. She got bedridden. She has been on like opiates pretty much her entire you know life as a pain patient, my entire life for sure. And for the first ten years of my life, you know, she was bedridden, lots of surgeries. My father was taking care of her. She wasn't really around too much. And then that kind of continued until I was in my like earlier like late twenties, early thirties, and I did an intervention, sent her to rehab. And got her off the pain for medicine. the pain medicine. Okay, you um, did the intervention. Oh yeah, well, me and Tommy Rosen and my partner Jenna all did it, and it was really that's hard because you're breaking all the family rules of how yeah. you're supposed to be, you know. Um, but she's been pain free for seven, ten, eight years now, which is amazing because all those opiates just keep the pain going, obviously. Yeah. But so I grew up in this environment. My father had PTSD from the Vietnam War. So the environment wasn't traumatizing in the context of you know abuse or whatever, but there was just a lot of emotional tension and emotional distance in my childhood. So that manifests later in life as drug abuse and you know uh, you know cocaine and uh, alcohol and you know codependent relationships and all that type of stuff. So my early twenties were full of that, and uh, and why I've always asked why because my parents were scientists, and uh, so I grew up in a scientific sort of household thinking about things. Why did I do all these drugs or why was I drinking so much or what was it? And I didn't know what the answer was. But after asking why long enough, I started to realize, oh, everyone's been through something hurtful. And that's informed kind of how they're showing up now. And I started to realize there's this thing as a bad response. There's just adaptive responses and primarily responses to keep us safe. So no one tries mm-hmm. to get in their own way. No one tries to have limiting beliefs, but people do try to get safe. And that just comes from a lot of curiosity, primarily with my own addiction first. And then working with, you know, 
lots of clients see what's going on with them too. And but did you go through, I mean, were you in treatment? Did you do 12 steps? Did you like, what kind of process did you have that helped you realize these things? Or did you really arrive yeah. at all of this completely just in your own I did awakening? it perfectly all by myself. Obviously. No <laughs> You're a professional. Yeah, exactly. No, um, I never went to a rehab center. I did do 12 step. I, I started in AA. That wasn't really my thing. And then I thought about NA and I thought about CODA. And I ended up. What in, is CODA? Codependence Anonymous. Oh, I knew okay. I was not. I did not belong in that meeting because that meeting, other affairs, a one like a beginner's CODA meeting. And I remember like being in the meeting. It was 15 minutes past the time it was supposed to start, and someone stood up and said, um, "Guys, uh, is everyone okay if we get started? It's been about 15 minutes. We should. Make, what do you think?" And like, in the codependence like, Anonymous. I don't know. What do you think is okay with you? Is it okay with you? Is it okay with you? And I say that, and I go, guys, let's start. Right. This is I why think, we're here. I'm in the wrong room. Yeah. You know? You're like, totally. all right, I graduated. I already graduated. I'm done. my room. But the SLAA room was my room, which is Sex and Love Acts Anonymous. And it wasn't the sex. It was more the emotional connection for me mm-hmm. that was really missing. And that's when I started learning a lot more about the things I do now in terms of love addiction, love avoidance. And that's very easily dovetails into trauma work and the attachment styles and stuff like that. But that was the first framework that made the most sense to me about why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I have these set of kind of you know symptoms, if you will. This is what I'll do. And, and you know, it's dovetailed from there. But the, the SLA meetings were really important in the early days for sure. Can you, can you, because you talk a little bit about sort of the, if you ask why five times, you eventually get to the answer. Yes, usually. Or um, six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. About five. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I, I've, I've been trying it. Yeah. Well, so it's the question that our kids ask that annoys us the most is like, why? Right. Yes. And, and I have two. And it's, let me tell you, it's pretty and, damn and annoying. It kind of bottoms out, at least in my childhood, at because I told you to, because, because I said my so. Father, my yeah. father, I said yeah. so. But if, if you ask why below that, usually it's, well, because I don't have the skill set because of my own childhood trauma and no one has that level of awareness. So usually it bottoms out at like, because I said so. However, and a lot of parents will like kind of like punish the why out of their kids because it's too annoying or whatever. But my parents were scientists and they never did that. They would get really frustrated at times for sure, but they always kind of programmed me for curiosity. So I was always, and to this day, always ask why. But it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago, I learned about sort of a, a Toyota who created Toyota and his manufacturing process. And basically his root cause analysis was, if you ask why five times, you can get the most root causes on like a manufacturing line. So like something broke. Why? Well, because the guy wasn't there. Why wasn't there? Because he was tired. Why was he tired? Because he's working a long shift. Why did he work a long shift? Because management didn't approve overtime or something. You know, and so mm-hmm. it's management's fault, not the worker's fault. You need to get the real root cause. And the same thing is essentially true with human beings, mm-hmm. right? Like you have a diagnosis of PTSD. Why? Something happened to me. Well, why was that traumatizing? Well, and all of a sudden five or six questions of why back, we're getting to something in childhood usually. Yeah. And so when I started working with clients, I never decided to start with trauma. But upon asking why enough to enough people, I started to realize everyone has something hurtful they went through. What's that called? Mm-hmm. I realized it's called trauma. There's different types of trauma too. So um, that's what I've been doing and it works really well. Uh, I guess if you ask why enough, it's because God created the universe or someone did. You know, Eventually, that's the ultimate why. But in general, like the root cause approach is really helpful because most people don't even ask why and they only look at symptoms and they mm-hmm. try to manage a symptom and they're not actually solving the actual problem. Right. But when you actually solve the actual problem, things go away, just like in functional medicine, right? Right. Like if you, if you have high, you know, inflammation or whatever, yeah. C reactive protein, cool. Well, maybe I need to take a, a, a Lipitor or some type of statin. But if you say why, well, because you have fatty liver. Well, why do you have fatty liver? Because I eat like shit. Well, why do you eat like shit? Because my life is completely emotionally dysregulated because I'm going through a divorce or something right. like that. Trauma. 
Here we are. Basically, nine out of ten times, it's going to be like, why? Because my mother didn't love me. True. (laughs) I mean, it's 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 nine out of ten. Yeah. Right. Or I I I felt unloved. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Freud said it best. You know, it's not one thing; it's your mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually going to be your quote. But but so you spoke earlier, uh, and I know we'll get into it. But there is sort of a spectrum of trauma, right? So we're not necessarily talking about abuse, and we're not necessarily talking about neglect, right? I mean, I I can sit here and say I felt like I had a, you know, I felt like I had a loving home and parents who cared about me and I didn't feel unloved, but obviously there's some trauma in my life. So yeah. how does that, what is the, what is the range on that spectrum? So if we look at the American Psychiatric Association and the book they published, the DSM-5, which is where all the diagnoses come from, we look at trauma, it's primarily thought in the context of shock trauma, like some type of forced immobilization, assault, uh, you know, um, being in a gunfight, you know, in, in war, combat and stuff like that. And those things certainly are traumatizing. But what we really look at in terms of what like trauma is, if we have to expand that conversation, it's a disconnection from safety. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh God, no okay. wonder. <laughs> and, I never felt safe growing up. Yeah, and that's a that's huge so thing to say, right? And not just as a disconnection from safety. God, you did, I'm sorry, but like I've been going to therapy for God knows how long. Did he just fix it? You just fixed me. And, and how so, much all that therapy cost? <laughs> a lot. And you know what? She basically just sat there and said, why do you feel that way? Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? But why? Uh, but that's why? all. That's nothing it. more. Yeah, right. okay. Sorry, go Because ahead. you asked me why. Um, <laughs> disconnection from safety. That's so interesting. It's not just a disconnection. It's also why what happens in our body as a response to that. Right. So it might be that your brain doesn't fully develop and you don't have the ability to have executive functioning and think things through. It might be that you have like this overreactive affect where you're just always stressed and you're always on and you know, your stellar ganglia is just translating all of this information, sympathetic information up into your low brainstem and amygdala and stuff like that. Because it's not just, trauma isn't just what happened, it's what happened inside of you because of what happened. Mm-hmm. Right, so like there's the a physiological in, reaction. Like Developmental, exactly. imprint that was made on your nervous system. Right, and other parts of your body, yeah. somatic memory, somatic, all that type of stuff. And so, so my definition of trauma <laughs> is slightly different than, say, the DSMs. I view trauma as anything that you know, chronically dysregulates your emotions, your brain, your body, your systems, your spirit, anything where there's chronic dysregulation, where you're not in an optimal state, that's a trauma. Not like in a moment, because you know, if you cut yourself, you put a band-aid on it and you never think about it again, that's not really traumatizing. But if something changes your ability to have optimal brain function, immune function, emotional function, you know, spirituality, that's traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Right. But my question is, okay, so it's safe to say that we all have some form of trauma, yes. but we don't know it. So how do you recognize it? So it's the same way in that, like it's the same with diet, right? So you don't really know how bad you felt until you change your diet, right? So sure. until you start, until well, you, you start eating the elimination, factor. right? And then you're like, oh my god, I didn't know how shitty I felt until mm-hmm. I started changing the way that I ate. And now I feel great. So I have to imagine that there's some kind of parallel there with trauma. And that, like, if you don't, you know, if you think I'm just hardwired or this is how I am in this constant state of like anxiety or fear, or whatever it is, this is just like how I was born. You don't know that you've been operating under this sort of like umbrella of trauma your entire life. So like, how do you identify or how do you even say in the first place, like, I've been traumatized right. in yeah. some way. And actually name the type of trauma, like yeah. we were saying. Yeah. So I gave a TED Talk at Wake Forest University and um, I shared a peer-reviewed study that talked about all the different types of symptoms of trauma. And it's things like anxiety, depression, chronic uh, drama in a relationship, the inability to achieve goals, uh, perfectionism, isolation, like all those things. Procrastination. Procrastination, all that stuff. Those are so, if you, if you notice yourself doing those things, 
there's some other root cause that's causing sure. that. Right. So, so basically, if you're stressed, there's trauma. If you're depressed, there's trauma. Anything in between, there's but, trauma. So that's a very broad brush. I mean, by oh, that, yeah. you say literally everybody has some degree of trauma. That's and right. it's just, so how do you, I guess to Zoe's point, how do you... How do you put yourself on that sort of spiritual elimination diet and and figure out which is the root cause? It's harder than something like that. Like, you know, if you go to an IFM functional medicine doctor and they say, okay, here, we're going to do an elimination diet, take this stuff out for 30 days, let's add it back in, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't do that with maybe your partner <laughs> right. or your family or your dog or whatever it might be. But what you can start to do is, and you have to have someone who has a, the right systems approach to start to uncover, like, where'd that come from? Where's that live in you? Mm-hmm. And where do those responses live? And what are the different parts? And like, there's different parts of us. We, some of us have parts that are two or three years old that run our relationship or run our business when we get really triggered, right? And like, we get completely offline. So it's more about creating more self-awareness first and foremost. And in mental health, we call that a sense of agency where you have a sense of control or influence over your body and its responses. And a lot of people have trauma, especially the big traumas, never had a sense of control over their own body. They don't think that they can control their own body. It's not something that was theirs in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is to look at your how you're responding to things and to have a guide to help you through that process. That's what functional coaching is about. And there's also lots of other, you know, if you get like a psychodynamic therapist or attachment therapist, something like that, they can be very helpful as well. But you have to have become aware or internal family systems is another great model for that. You have to start to become aware of your own internal responses first and create some influence agency and befriending them first and foremost. Mm. So Which, go towards go towards the go fear. in the direction of the scary things. Which is yeah, and and which is something that your parents never did when you were in that emotional state. Right. What did they do? Usually whatever you do to that part of yourself. So if you're a part of yourself that's really stressed, angry, depressed, and you try to, you know, eat your way through it or work your way through it or ignore it, that's probably exactly what your parents did. They never actually slowed down and say, hey, let's talk. Are you okay? How are you feeling? They didn't befriend that part of yourself. So yeah. you never do that yourself. So it's literally oh. a reparenting process. And for them, yeah. And then you flip it back to them. And the reason that they did that is because it was it was not applied to their own experience with whatever their personal trauma was. We can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden or whatever your origin story of humanity can yeah. be. You know, aliens, whatever. Like. The be- it all it started at the beginning. In the beginning was trauma. Right. <laughs> right. It got passed down. You know, right. The Bible is full that of it, right? That was the version that did not get published. Yeah. Right. Well, it's there though. Cain and, a- Cain and Abel, right? right? I mean, it's right. Cain and Abel down. That's that's trauma. You know, or mm. even like you look at what Eve did or whatever. That the, the trauma in the Bible, as an example, is disconnection from God or disconnection. Period. That's what that, that's what made the devil the devil. Disconnection. Mm-hmm. Huh. Like disconnection from safety. Right. It's all there, just not the lens of neuroscience. It's through the lens of dogma, which is not a good lens to look through usually. But then you can argue that the lens of neuroscience also has its own version of this, right? I mean, of dogma? Oh, for sure. Well, not of dogma, but of 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 identifying that trauma and saying that it has oh, yeah. actually changed your neurotransmitters, for example. And oh yeah, I mean, that's what epigenetics is all about, right? It's like you know, people say, Mastin, it's not all trauma. Sometimes there's a genetic impact. I'm like, gen. Trauma impacts genetic expression, guys. Right. Like that's well documented. Right. Genetic trauma is still trauma, right? Okay, it's can, can you give an example? Well, there's a whole study done, for example, like Holocaust survivors and their families, like a completely different gene expression than those who weren't in those experiences. Mm-hmm. So what is what is what is uh, epigenetics? It, well, it's how our genes respond to our environment. And certain genes get turned on and turned off based on certain stimuli, right? So if we have a group of people that go through a collective trauma together and it's not processed, their genetic expression will change. And it won't change until someone else turns it off through a, a therapeutic process. So, you know, think about the Holocaust, right? It's 
extremely traumatizing experience for millions of people, right? And there was no like, now let's undo that, guys. Mm -hmm. It was just live your life, right? right? So like, how could you imagine a world where those genes weren't expressing in a different way? There was no intervention, right? So when you look at people, for example, who have that in their history, there's a different genetic expression than people that don't. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at, you know, like, you talk about the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. It's no, it's like epigenetics gets passed on based on your environment, right? Which is why, especially in personal growth, if someone says, well, if I can do it, you can do it, that's mm-hmm. not entirely accurate. Right. Do we have the same socioeconomic background? What's your you know, race, skin color, bias? What, how much resources you have as a kid? Like none of those things, you have to take all those things into consideration if you give somebody advice, right? Because each person has a different history and background and a different epigenetic expression based on that. And that's what's cool about epigenetics is people think that you're limited by your genes, but you're not. You're limited by what your genes express. So you can turn certain genes on and off and stuff yeah. like that over time. I feel it's like that's fast. such a radical idea and it's so new that people just, they haven't like bought into it. Yet. Yeah. Well, it seems um, very intangible because it doesn't happen overnight. Well, I think it's, it's also, and I think it's also more comfortable that like people don't, it, it, it sort of makes them accountable or responsible mm-hmm, right. to some degree. Right. And if you can't so say, much oh, it's just in my genes. To say, like, I was just born, you know, I, you know, I was born that way. There's nothing I could do about it. It was passed down to me, whatever. And, and that story that I was born this way and nothing I could do about it is the echo of generational trauma from earlier generations who felt powerless to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So changing the story that I can't change is part of changing that generational trauma pattern. What do you think about this idea? Okay, because I just had Reiki recently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I know you talk about sort of exploring all these different modalities and, and how you deal with trauma. Uh, so I just did Reiki for the first time and she was like focusing on this area of my my body and how it was impacted, et cetera. And so she went back, you know, how she was explaining it to me. She went back, like the trauma was caused not by this life, but by my previous life and the one before that. I know generationally it can impact me. <laughs> that definitely gets passed down. And I know I'm probably going a little bit outside of what we're talking about right now. I don't think but so. no, do you have any do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Or does that seem uh, absurd so, to you? So no. And here's why. I think a lot of times people have like a past life regression or a memory of a past life. Like we have to realize that the resilience and the hurt of our ancestors gets passed down through our DNA. So you may not be having a past life regression of your past life, but maybe that happened in your lineage. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's something that your DNA is that's stored as a memory. I completely think that's absolutely possible. Yeah. Right. Why, why wouldn't that be possible? Because what's the point of evolution? It's not to remember the past to improve and survive in the future. That's the whole point of what evolution is all about. Yeah. So is it a soul memory of your specific soul up for debate? Could it be data from your DNA that's coming up to be cleared? I think that might make a little bit more sense. Right. I mean, it has a future life regression. No, I've never met someone with a future life. Why do we always have past lives? Because it's the DNA that's carried from the past. I mean, that's a really good point. That's, that's so fascinating. Thing. Yeah. And it is interesting if you think just about the stress of the, the immediate generation, just like the stress of the mother, right? When you're pregnant in the womb. Yeah. I mean, that is all Huge. very documented and tangible well, and, how that gets passed and down. And check this out. This is my, blow well, your mind if I haven't thought about this yet. So, if you have a child, as, a, as, a, as a, so if you're a woman, let's just say you're the mom, and you have a child, that child is in many ways more your mother's child than your child. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in your mother's womb, the eggs that you have came from her. So Wait, hold on. We did this. I, have, I mean, this is when we were right. working on prenatal yes. like, vitamin. Pro- like, yeah, yeah. The eggs that were formed yeah. for you to give birth to your child actually came, came from, from, your, from your mother. So yeah. that's why so like, there's like a correlation with kids and the grandparents. Like, there's usually like a lot of similarities and stuff like that and gene skip. But like, that's, I felt very connected to my grandmother who I never met. Yeah. 
I think that's like, yeah. that's just genes. That's super interesting. You know? So, yeah. yes. I think that's just passed down. <laughs> Are you still <laughs> yeah, working on sure. that one? No, I'm not. I'm just thinking okay. about how when... So, you were talking a little bit about it earlier, but, you know, and I listened to a lot of Doug Shepard, but he talks about how... His upbringing, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, right? So he was an, you know, an addict. He had some sexual trauma, abuse, and maybe that was all connected to that. But his point was like, you know, I lived a pretty good life. Like I had all, you know, I never wanted for anything. I was like very loved. I felt supported. I I went through. I like acknowledged my trauma, whatever, you know. But he still had this battle with addiction. Um, and so trying to like figure out the root cause for him seems to be a little bit of a mystery. And I'm wondering just how much of that is like, well, maybe it's not in your immediate history. Maybe it came from a different generation. Like, it's very entirely you know. possible. Yeah. Um, and what I would say about addiction in general, I was just having this conversation earlier today too. So especially in trauma work, people have this perception that their trauma work means identifying what happened to them. That's a trauma list. <laughs> it's okay. Just, so it's, it's important to know what happened to you. If you don't know, you don't remember, then knowing that's important. But the work is day-to-day, right? So it's more like, it's not like you do your trauma work and you take this antibiotic and it's out of your system and mm-hmm. you killed, right? It's more viral. And viruses flare in times of stress, yes. right? So that's why someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman can be sober for 20 plus years and then relapse and right. overdose and die because those neural pathways are still there. They've atrophied but they're still there. So people who think, oh, I'm good now, that's kind of dangerous. So anyone who has addiction in their history, that those, those, pathways are, those neural pathways are still there. Right. So it's about being able to guard against that in a sense and have not like hypervigilance, but awareness around that to not think, well, I'm good now. Because no one, if you have addiction in your history, you're not good now. If you put cocaine in front of me right now, I need to get the hell out of the room quickly before my willpower goes out the way. Right. This no applies to sex addiction as well, oh, for sure. right? So Big I time. just think about a lot of challenged relationships where there's infidelity sure. and you have this like, I don't know, it's always there. It's just really hard to, um, in that, per- because you're obviously in a relationship, so it's kind of like a right, different- Right, that's affecting other, somebody it, else yeah, right, immediately. Very, very directly, yeah. yeah. It's like, how do you, how do you ever really trust a person if you know that those neuropathways are always there? <laughs> and it's like, all you need is a little bit of stress to just tip you over the edge and then- In infidelity? Yeah. Infidelity is awesome in a way. And I'll tell awesome. you, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. It sucks. <laughs> it's awful. It's yeah. the, some of the worst things you can feel, but you can absolutely come back after infidelity because infidelity is never about sex. Right. No, I know. But I'm not even talking about infidelity. I'm talking about like an addiction, right? Like, so sex, I'm talking about pretty extreme and maybe we're talking about the same thing, but like- extreme sex addiction, right? Where you're just like a repeat offender. It's like chronic. Yeah. As opposed to like one indiscretion or, you know. Right. Well. One or two. Here's what I know. Whether it's infidelity or addiction. Yeah. If you're not taking a developmental approach to look at someone's history and the trauma that impacted them and how their parents raised them and what happened before or after certain events and what the missing development is for them, you're never going to actually get to an answer that's satisfactory. Right. But I can get miraculous outcomes from like couples when we get down to the parts of them that are traumatized and never got acknowledged and have them start to talk to each other. Amazing shit happens. Litigations go away. Hmm. <laughs> Divorces become amicable or get reversed back into a happy marriage and with work because you get to meet a part of your partner that you've never met before and they've never met. And they've never met, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like this like gremlin that's been running shit that was never identified. And once you're like, hey, I see you and I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm going to befriend you. 
And my job as the partner is going to be to take care of your little gremlin and you're going to take care of my gremlin. It's a completely different conversation. Yeah. Interesting. That's it's, really- it's very powerful to really get to that place. Yeah. So, because, you know, when you look at like, what is sex addiction? Usually sex addiction is a, is sort of like replaying failure to thrive. Like, I never failure got enough to thrive. T- yeah, I never got enough touch. And they don't know how to get those needs met. And other than in those ways, which are unconscious. Right, because if if I'm not getting my needs met in a relationship, and I'm having something like that running me unconsciously, I'm going to replay my trauma for it to come up so I can heal it. That's how trauma gets healed a lot of times. Is we we go through the emotions of it as we did before, but we make a different choice. Which is why when a couple gets to a place where they're like, maybe we're going to get divorced or maybe we should separate, that's a really great moment because what they're really seeking is agency and individuation. Mm-hmm. And the only way they know how to do that in the past is to split versus. How can we be different together? And that's a healing process. So yeah, there's a lot that we can talk about in that context because you know we replay our stuff until we heal it. And, re- and romantic relationships is like a but do we that. always right. heal it? I mean, I guess that's the question: is we can replay it. And to Zoe's point, I mean, you have like a serial cheater, for example, or somebody who is you know is addicted, has substance abuse problems, and you're saying you, re- you replay your shit until you heal it, but. Mm-hmm. Are you definitely healing it every time you are going back? It like you can't. Not it's necessarily. Hard to, <laughs> it's hard to justify and say I'm gonna uh, go have this affair because I'm working on my healing. No, that that that's certainly not healing. Um, it's more <laughs> afterwards yeah. saying like, oh, this is why this happened, and then starting to mature the parts of yourself that would not normally inhibit that behavior. So it doesn't and it doesn't happen automatically. Like like after something like infidelity or something like that, it can take years to get trust back mm-hmm. for sure. That's part of the process, though. And the truth is, it was never really there in the first place. Interesting. No, you Uh, don't think so? No way. No, no. (laughs) On on whose part, though? Uh, On the cheater or the cheated? Well. Cheated on. Okay. Just because someone has trauma doesn't mean that they're off the hook. Okay? So, like, you know, someone who commits domestic violence has trauma in their history, too. But it doesn't mean that what they did is okay. Right. Okay? And we're not turning, like, the person who's the abuser into the victim all of a sudden. We're not doing any of that. But to understand something, we have to understand it before we can change it, right? So if we become aware of the trauma that makes someone you know, impulsively go you know, somewhere else, that that's really avoidance is what it is. It's a fear of intimacy. That like, you're not going to actually have my back. We can do the work at that point. And, but we don't highlight the trauma to justify the behavior yet again. Because mm-hmm. at some point, you got to be out, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, and maybe for someone healing their own trauma, uh, is choosing to leave when they would normally stay because that's no longer good for them, mm-hmm. right? It's very personalized, sure. right? So there's no like one-size-fits-all answer. Right. Sometimes Which, it's staying when you want to leave too. Right, right. <laughs> that's very true. Well, and I've heard you say that before, talking about how it's not one-size-fits-all and it's very personalized, which I think is you know, super valuable because I feel like we're learning that you know, across certainly across wellness in general, like there's definitely not a single diet that is right for everybody. There's not a single form of exercise that will yield the same results. So when it comes to mental health and therapies and and like these modalities, then it, it stands to reason that, you know, you have to approach it slightly differently. You've also said that trauma right now, is, or I guess the study of it is where Meditation was ten years ago. Oh, for, well, not the study of it, the public's perception. The public's perception. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, like, so, like, all the research is already done. People, we already like, if we're talking research, right? It's all there. It's just not. I, I think it has to do more with like accept, like, like it's kind of closety, and it's sort Anytime. of yeah. But yeah. Why? Well, because it's our hard, it's our underbelly. You know, it's the hard stuff to talk about. Um, and you know, trauma has been pushed under the rug forever. 
all of it. I mean, right. to this day, to this Which day. Which is why there's so much shame associated that's with it. That's right. Yeah. To this day, after 400 years of persecution and slavery and all that crazy stuff that happened where we have, you know, an entire country built on the backs of slaves. Right. Where it's the like- economic agenda of the country is dependent upon African Americans being one down to whites because mm-hmm. that 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 was the that was how our economic engine happened. We can't even say that. Yeah. That is trauma denial. And yeah. that's why it's so prevalent today because we can't talk about it. And you know what else we can't talk about? How as a white person do I navigate that? Right. There's no playbook for that either, right? Right. So it's like we can't even agree that climate change is happening. Right. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like there's all kinds of trauma denials. Usually covered up by economic agendas, right? That's usually what it is. So, you know, are there other things you can do for cancer besides chemo and radiation? Yes. Does it fit with a certain economic agenda? No. Same right. with mental health. There's lots of stuff you can do that's not a pill, but that's where the and it's not going to make anybody money, is, right? right? That's right. So you have to really look at what's the uh, economic agenda, and it's, there's no <laughs> so right now up. economic agenda to talk about trauma. The economic agenda is covering it up. Right. Right. Because take this antidepressant, take this whatever pill that's going to make you just exactly. not deal with your problems. We'll sell, more, we'll sell more copies of the DSM to our, you know, whatever. Like that's the economic agenda. So, but it will shift and change because people are going to demand that it does. How? So how is it going to shift? And just change? like how anything disrupts, you create a better solution. Well, you're doing that certainly, right? Exactly. I mean, you're. Like how does Uber disrupt a taxi company? Right? Just make a better solution. People demand it, and then market forces move it. So the work that you're doing in moving this this movement forward. I mean, you're you're working with clients one on one and 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 coaching and and working through. I mean, do you have you have a practice set up and then you're doing like how does your? Are we talking about the functionality, about the functional coaching, yeah. right? So specifically, yeah. yeah. Um. So I have one on one clients and then we have different programs. We we help practitioners build businesses, but with a trauma informed lens, which is something you usually have your therapist over here and your business coach over there. And they don't know about each other's context. So we help practitioners build business in the context of their trauma because especially practitioners have a lot of trauma usually. And that stops them from going live on Instagram or generating the right amount of revenue or whatever that might be. Um, and then we have just pure, you know, straight up like emotional strategies for all the root cause stuff as well. Um, so we have two sides of our business. And at some point in the near future, I'll be rolling out a certification as well, because that's the number one question I get, which is sure. how do I do what you do? That was my next which question. I don't have any certification. So why? You know, like, but it's gonna be important. So and yeah, it'll be teaching people how to do what I do. It'll be three years. It'll be very intense. Mm-hmm. The first year is all about you. If you look at like people who get masters or whatever in therapy now, there isn't a lot of focus on their own therapy. It's about how many hours you have with clients, serving clients, but mm-hmm. how many hours you've done yourself, which I think should be opposite. Because you can only take someone as deep as you've gone. Sure. You know? No, I think that's super. Um, so the first year would just be ripping people open to their own stuff, <laughs> basically. Because trauma work is not like a two days angel card certification thing. Like it's like you're dealing with the most sensitive parts of people. Sure. Like so you it's said, it's the underbelly. We talked a lot about the sort of like, you know, physical, like tangible moments that potentially cause trauma. But do you, is any part of the, the coaching or the therapy, does any of it have to do with like diet? Because I know you talked a little bit about connection between the gut and the brain. And obviously it's a big one and we're mm-hmm. learning more and more about it every day. And it's yeah. kind of mind-blowing how powerful that is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, absolutely. And in the functional coaching approach, it's holistic, right? So we have to look at the emotional components. So what's happening internally with you? How are you responding? Where does that response come from? We map the object relations, like what happened with mom and dad? How were you operating? How did that set certain neural expectancies in your life? How you plan that out now? Here's some different strategies, like all that 
standard kind of stuff. We do the different parts that people have and helping them integrate those different parts, the younger parts, the older parts, different ability to regulate their emotional states, understand how their nervous system works, like the dials of the nervous system, kind of that movie Inside Out. You ever saw that movie Inside Out? No, uh, but I will now. It's a really great film. And it's about kind of like, you have this control panel of your emotions and here's how to use oh, it. Oh, it's the kids' right? movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah with yeah. all the little emotions. Okay. Yeah, so it's, but you, but, oh, oh, yeah. I yeah, do know people, it's a, that is an incredible film, by yeah. the way, on psychology. Like it's, we show that at our events for psychoeducation. But like once people understand that stuff, we hear things like, but I'm still tired, I'm still this, I'm still that. And what are you eating, right, mm-hmm. is a really important piece. What comes first, the dysbiosis or the trauma? I don't know, right? right? It's hard to know. I had a debate with Jeffrey Bland about that, the father of functional medicine. <laughs> and we kind of decided it's both. Like, it's kind of like both come first, essentially. But the diet certainly matters. So I partner a lot with functional medicine doctors. Uh, one of my partners is Dr. Helen Messier, who uh, is a PhD immunologist, is a geneticist. And we'll work together on stuff. And we'll talk, um, I'll talk to the emotional side. And then she'll bring in you know, the gut health and we'll discuss, you know, like I can interpret like the Amen Clinic's brain scans and stuff like that and talk to her about that. I never make medical recommendations. I'll work with someone's doctor though, mm-hmm. hopefully functional medicine doctor. And we'll look at like, what is your C-reactive protein levels? Are they in dysbiosis? Do they have leaky gut? Yada, 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 all that type of stuff. Um, and when you combine the emotional work with some of the physiological work like that, super valuable, obviously. Yeah. Because what happens is without doing the, the food stuff, you'll do all the emotional awareness, but you won't feel good. Right. Well, it's like putting terrible gas into a a brand new Ferrari and when all the other pieces are, you know, shiny and pretty, but then you're, it's running. Exactly. But if you just do the food stuff and not the emotional stuff, then you'll revert back to the behaviors that got you in the other food stuff. Exactly. So you need to have both. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it is. It's just such a connection. I think people don't give it enough credit. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. I mean, and the best antidepressants in the world are food. Yep. Right. I mean, you know, seriously, you know, and, and some people think they have anxiety. I go, that's not anxiety, that's dairy. <laughs> right. It's reflux. That's true. inflammation. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's, it's true. true. But, and insomnia uh, and all the rest yeah. of it. Let's not talk bad about dairy, okay? Let's not talk bad about cheese. But it's all, not. There's kidding. a place for I'm cheese. Kidding. We know there's a place I'm for kidding. cheese. Kidding. Yes, there's a place for cheese. Um, <laughs> it's so funny that my children have never had milk. Really? Never. They've had cheese. They've had cheese, Can but I not say milk. something publicly? Please, we're on there. There's no <laughs> such thing as almond milk. Uh, it is almond it's, juice. It's almond juice. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, there's no like almond mammary gland or anything like that. You cannot milk an almond. Okay, so that's just right. don't call it almond milk. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Almond but you juice. Know what, that how, coconut or anything uh, like that. Right. Coconut yeah. milk. It's interesting. We say coconut water. We don't say almond water. Right. right. Exactly. So anyway, just You I say, say ca- cashew. Milk. Ca- well, all nuts get called milk. Oat milk. Yeah. No, it's yeah. juice. It's juice. Right. Right. Have to say that. No, get it out. This just, is part yeah, of you it, healing. Yeah, because I'm like, it's not milk. It's anyway. frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and I also wanted to point out, I know that you've you've said um that when we were talking about diets and how it's not prescriptive in the same way, you know, mental health healing is not prescriptive and and you learned that kale is actually not for you and yes. you're happy about it because of kale's publicists, which I think is pretty much us. Just, just for the no, record. I'm not Sorry, we no, also no. called cashew milk milk. So. I'm, no, it's okay. Listen, I'm, not saying, I'm a, just saying a little funny. bit of I heard you say history. that talking about like I wasn't such a fan of like the, the public, you know, the Kale's publicist in the first place. I was like, that, that was pretty much us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's totally cool. Yeah, it's not for everybody. I celery juice because it's annoying. Let's have cucumber juice today instead. How about that? Totally. <laughs> Can we just have like a battle? I want to create like a round table where it's like medical medium. Mastin, Kip, us, I don't know, a few people. I want to just like really duke it out. Sure. But 
can also just point out that one of the core ingredients of every green juice that we certainly ever made with Blueprint and beyond is fucking celery. Sure, so somebody course. who like last year was like, celery juice is a new thing. Like, it's so not a uh, new thing. I feel, yeah. like, I feel like you just go into the grocery store and like look at like the fresh fruit area and just picks, okay, to this month, we're going to make ginger yes, the thing. Yes, it's employee of the and month. It's all about ginger yeah, now. And also in diet, it's funny because like there's only three macronutrients. Which one's the enemy this month? You totally. Know? Is, <laughs> is it, it the fat protein? Is it fat protein or, or carbs? Which one That's is right. it? You know? It's so very interesting. It's getting just like increasingly confusing and gimmicky and markety and well, annoying. But. The one thing that I really do like though, there is a field that's emerging called nutritional psychiatry. And it's really cool because they're focusing on nutrition in the context of emotional regulation. Okay. And I think that's a really cool way to think of it. Yeah. Right. Because it's like what helps me feel emotionally sure. regulated versus a weight loss thing or just am I alkaline or acid or ketonic what a ketogenic or whatever. It's more like what's my emotional state like? Sure. Which I think is a really fascinating way to look at food. Because that's really what it is. If you look at all the way back at Hippocrates. Yeah. Right. Like let food be thy medicine. And it just, you know, what's right for you or me might be different. But to that context, I think it's really interesting with the mindset. I was just talking, I think, to Sarah, uh, my publicist about this, one of their clients uh, has this idea of like, eat for the way you want to feel, mm-hmm, not right. eat based on how you feel. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really cool that's idea. That's a good, yeah. like dress for the job you want. Yeah, yeah that's a nice eat way, very the- simple way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of interesting, which is the same way that you would approach a personal development process sure. or whatever too, you know? And it also ties back to what we were saying earlier about the whole gut health piece of it, because what you're putting in has a direct impact on how you're actually processing that food, which then has a direct impact on how your brain responds and how your system responds. Because yeah. Well, if you look at like uh, the, the, the early data research that started with Darwin on like the autonomic nervous system, right? We think to this day the autonomic nervous system is sort of antagonistic. It's fight or flight or it's parasympathetic, right? Like it's either on or off, one or the other. That's not how it works. The other thing is, is that they focused uh, you know, from Darwin on on like brain down to body fibers, which are called efferent fibers from like the, the communication that goes from the brain down to the body. But we now know there's 10 times more afferent fibers, which is data from the body to the brain. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. mental health isn't, mm-hmm. isn't mental health. It's somatic health. And so there's, there's no way except for maybe surgery to improve brain health without improving body health first. There's no way to do it. Say that again because I think that's so important. It's a important. two-way street. It goes both it, ways. It is right? bidirectional, but there's 10 times more data coming up from the body to the brain than going down from the brain to the body. So the, the body and what you're putting into is informing oh, yeah. the brain and how you're more treating more it. than the other. Health yes. body health. Yes. There's no such yeah. thing as mental health. That's horse right. shit. Yeah. It's body health. The, the, the health of your somatic body impacts, like your brain. if you get a brain scan, that when you look at a brain, I truly believe that you're looking at the state of the body and its imprint on the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not the state of the brain imprinting the body. It's not that's not that's how it so works. So interesting. Fascinating. It really totally is. know. Uh, yeah. Damn brain. It really is. Um did, did you want to go somewhere? I did, but I want you to go okay. someplace too. Let's well, I just you know the whole f- fight or flight. I think you talk a little bit about good fear, bad fear. Right. Well, what do what do you say about good okay. fear, bad fear? Yeah. So okay. So changing your life, getting what you want, goal achievement, wish fulfillment, whatever always will have fear accompanied with it because you're stepping into something new and the unknown is inherently scary. However, you look at like the spiritual advice, fear is the opposite of love or fear is false evidence appearing real. That is just complete horseshit. Right. <laughs> right? It's a little oversimplified. I yeah, think. and it's not false evidence appearing real. Like, you, like here's the thing. When someone's in psychosis or having a traumatic memory flashback, in that moment, for them, it's real. Right. From the mm-hmm. practitioner's perspective, it might not be real, but for that person, it's very real. So you're actually invalidating people's responses right. that are completely normal and natural. 
And I've never met one person who's achieving a goal that they really want to achieve that wasn't scared ahead of time, right? Or you go on stage, you have stage fright or whatever. Like, it's always there because what that's happening is you have a sympathetic nervous system response to uncertainty. So our bodies are designed to get into this fight or flight response with uncertainty. The goal is to befriend it and not stop because you're scared, which is what happens in the past. And with trauma, what happens is, is that we don't complete something. So we get, kind of get stuck in this like incompletion of something. Mm-hmm. We don't push somebody off of us. We don't say, what about me? We don't say no, whatever it is. And so if we don't go into something that's scary, we don't get a chance to complete what we couldn't complete before. Right. I guess that's what I mean by going towards right. going but in that what direction. What I don't mean yes. is like there's a dude in the alleyway with a gun. Correct. You don't run and front him. I asked and said, go towards your fear. Right. Like, right. No. right. No. <laughs> no, an example would be a fear of being alone. Exactly. Right. Which is, I think, a very, very, very common fear for everyone. Sure. And people have it to you know varying degrees. But yes, it's safe to say that if you're maybe in your in a shitty relationship, yes. the fear of being alone is something that you should really go towards. Go towards right. experiment with it. Yes. And acknowledge okay. that it's been harder for you to be alone. Yeah. Right. It's hard for anyone to be alone. Right. Because, because the fear around that is uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's not valid, because like you say, I mean it's all valid, right? But it doesn't mean that you should avoid it. No, well, yeah. you have a good reason not to want to be alone because, especially as a child, we know that, like, as a child, we're vulnerable. Yeah. And when we're alone, we're prey. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if mom and dad are here to protect me, the lion's going to kill me. Right. right. So, like, being alone means to our nervous system, we're prey. So, it can feel like you're going to die because that's something you'd be afraid of, but you start to realize that that's not entirely accurate. Mm-hmm. And you can start to give your nervous system more information and proof that something else is actually true. But in the beginning, it's very hard to do that. So yeah, there's always a good response for why we respond the way that we do. And the more we can befriend that rather than pathologize it, the better. Because we have enough doctors and stuff pathologizing us already, you know? <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so my question was sort of, it's related, but it's on a side note. But it goes back to what we were you were saying kind of earlier in the conversation. But how important in this work is somebody's sense of spirituality because I feel like there's really a very broad spectrum of people, of, of, of opinions or sort of perceptions of what this, this type of work is. And on one hand, you have the naysayers who say, you know, it's all just totally woo-woo and you got to fix your shit and it has nothing to do with, you know, tapping into something like beyond you. And then on the other side, you have people who like fully embrace and say that this is all in God's hands. And then I think the great many of us are kind of in the middle so what would you say, how, how critical or not relevant is it? Well, it's extremely relevant, but what's relevant isn't whether or not it's true. Like, we're not going to debate whether God exists or not, because no one can really prove it or disprove it. But all the peer-reviewed research, you go to PubMed right now, pubmed.com, type in quotes, purpose in life, and you'll see a hundred million different peer-reviewed studies come up about how purpose in life, meaning a sense of spirituality, contributes to almost every Thing becoming better, whether it's centenarians in blue zones, whether it's uh, cancer uh, outcomes, whether it's uh, financial well-being, whatever it might be, a sense of purpose or connection to something larger than yourself is directly correlated to thriving in the data. So whether or not it's true doesn't fucking matter, right? Sure. Because it works. <laughs> okay, so I, I would, I would, I'm not challenging it. I would like to take a step further and say, spirituality, but and being connected to something larger than yourself potentially are one and the same, but could also be very different. Well, spirit. With the so definitions, what is spirituality? Right. My definition. My definition is a measure of how loving you are. That's how I define spirituality. Mm-hmm. If you're defining spirituality as a belief in a higher power, cool. 
Either way, it's personalized for you. Mm-hmm. The data shows if you attach yourself to a cause or entity or being or belief or whatever larger than yourself, mm-hmm. outcomes improve. Mm-hmm. So it's do kids simple. count? Sure. Something? <laughs> I'm like, am I going to live longer because I have <laughs> that, that they are now the purpose? I mean, they're yeah. contributing. Absolutely. And factor, if you at look least. at like blue zones and centenarians and like why do people live over a We love to look up blue zones. We love talking about so blue zones. Like, one of the things is that the elder's wisdom is valued by the community. So literally kids keep people, their, you know, their parents alive right. if they value them. <laughs> right. True. So you better Very make sure point. that those little kids value you later. Yeah, <laughs> damn make it. Sure. Hey, my dad's from a blue zone. I just have to say it every time. <laughs> Which one? Uh, Ikaria. Nice. Greek. That's awesome. Yeah, man. So I'm going to be around forever. Well, I was going to say, I neither have a blue zone nor a child. So, so my out. outcome is not looking so good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will tell you the other common thread between all the blue zones, right? These, these super agers is like, you know, half of them can't produce like actual documentation about their birth certificate. So right. Well, they don't even know how old they are. Well, I know, but that's why it's a lot of, it's like, eh, let's just call them older than 100. Let's call them over 100. Let's just call them old, old AF. Yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, but that's, that is really interesting. And how else can you define purpose. Yeah, that's how it's going to go. Well, so there's a clinical definition. There's my definition. I think my definition is better, actually. Um, Why but, can't you just make it the clinical definition? Because no one's done a peer-reviewed study and cited me as the definition yet. Okay. So. <laughs> there's a process. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I need an IRB Peer? Um, But no, so uh, the clinical definition is like a life aimed that simulates goals. Life, Say it again. Life, life aim that stimulates goals. Stimulates goals. Life aim that stimulates goals. So it's like, what makes you get out of bed in the morning? What, okay. what makes you do stuff, right? I define purpose because if you think about why do I set a goal, it's to feel an emotional state. I want the emotional state that it's going to give me. Mm-hmm. So to me, right. purpose is an emotion. And it's an emotion that you cultivate within yourself and you express to the world, world in the form of service. And that that's why, whether it's a child, a business, whatever, you'll always have purpose. And so different vehicles of purpose will maybe change where maybe you don't have a child and you're an empty nester now, or the business has changed and you want to start, start, start something different. People get really caught up in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. the business, the child, the relationship without realizing it's an emotional state. And so for me, it's just about really focusing on, again, emotional regulation and what type of emotions do I want to bring forward to my team, to my partner, mm-hmm. to whatever. And that's really the main goal. And you know, that's also very kind of law of attraction-y if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's start with the feeling, right? But that's what it's all about. And the, all the mental health data is very clearly going towards emotional regulation too is like the core strategy. And as more jobs get outsourced to AI and stuff like that, everything's going towards soft skills, which is all emotional stuff. So everything's going emotional into this right direction. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's really interesting. So what advice would you give someone who is struggling with finding their purpose? By finding, claim your power. What is it? <laughs> By my book. <laughs> <laughs> claim your power. No, seriously. I mean, like I took 10 years to write this thing. Yeah. And it's all about purpose. And purpose and trauma are like, you know, go together like uh, peanut butter and jelly. But, you know, people would pay like 10 or 15 grand to come to these like retreats for seven days to go through a process like this. And after a while, I said, I just need to get this research out there. So, but like, I mean, I'm not, I know it's shameless self promotion, yeah. but literally, this is the, not shameless. This is it. No, that's why, that's why you're that's here. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> that is an appropriate answer. So, what is your, what's your day? What's your like daily routine? How do you keep yourself in check? How do you keep yeah. your power claimed? How do it, you, well, it depends <laughs> on the context, right? So, I have like when I'm home and when I'm traveling is very different because they're very different expectations. Am I prepping for an event or am I kind of in maintenance mode? Uh, if I'm just in sort of general maintenance mode, I'll wake up. I'm getting up later, actually, because I try to force myself to get up earlier and go to bed earlier, but my body does not like to wind down and be asleep till 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I need eight hours. So I decided to get up at lunchtime, which is seven o'clock in the morning for me. That's like so late. Um, but so I'm still getting adjust, uh, adjusted to that. So, but I'll wake up, I'll do uh, some fastest day, say cardio, you know, walking for 30 minutes to an hour, just kind of depending on how much time I have. I'll have a pretty big meal uh, that's carbohydrate and protein centric and fats. I'll wait about 90 minutes. I'll do some weight training uh, for about an hour or so. I'll have another, my, probably my biggest meal of the day right after that to kind of let, let up the glycogen. So that's at like 10 or 11 a.m.? Something like that. Yeah. Or like 12 or 1, just kind of depending. What um, is your diet? Uh, it depends also what I'm trying to do. Sometimes, you know, I don't have like one specific diet. Sometimes like I just have a sweet thing here or there. Sometimes I'm really trying to cut. Sometimes I'm trying to bulk. It just really kind of depends on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm in like cut mode, so we can talk about that. People want to know about weight loss or whatever. It's primarily focused on uh, insulin, mm-hmm. regulating insulin more than anything else. And also trying to get the carbs in earlier in the day. And I also do a lot of weight training. So it's not fair for me to compare what I eat for other people. I'm also six foot five. But I'll preload my carbs in the morning and I'll wrap it around a workout. And I try to have a lot of anti-inflammatory stuff. I don't do a lot of dairy and stuff like that. I am definitely not vegan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I tried my best to source the meat as best as I can. And you could kind of say that, you know, I'm sort of followed the general good principles of eating well. So, you know, good acid alkaline balance, uh, you know, uh, doing all the, you know, uh, digestive enzymes and betaine, all that type of stuff to make sure that like I'm actually able to digest, absorb food and stuff like that. And trying not to eat before bed. And that's a hard thing sometimes because that's like, like, I have like the witching hour between like 7 and 9 p.m. Yeah. I deserve something. It's funny because that is like, it's the hardest thing to do, but it is the most rewarding in terms of how I feel the next day. Absolutely. It's like, if I give myself proper time before I go to bed, I wake up feeling totally energized. If I eat too close to bed, I wake up feeling like absolute shit. It doesn't matter what I eat. Well, you're hogging all your body's resources. All of that time. Storing and digesting and shit. Right. It's it's the time to to rest and heal. Um, And all the data on intermittent fasting is actually starting to come out because, you know, it's a thing. Intermittent fasting is a good thing. But if you actually eat most of your food early in the day and taper off at night, the data is very clear that that's actually better for like autophagy and stuff like that than eating food later at night and, and just sleeping waiting on it. all day. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Um, I think the first company to really suggest intermittent fasting was a genius company called Blueprint back in 2007. <laughs> Are you serious? Um, yeah, really? it was called. No way. Quarterly, why don't you you um, not eat for three days in a row? Really? Just saying. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh my god. Crazy well, idea. It's funny. Corrected. It's been packaged up slightly different these days, but it really is the same thing. It really yeah. is the same concept. Um, yeah, I think they're neighbors. I mean, yeah. it's not. It was. It was less about time, and it was more about you know, like digestive. You give your energy. body a rest. Yes. Right? And if That's we all. also look at like the microbiome science, right? So we're talking about the gut, right? So there's yeah. certain microbes that grow when the food is present. There's other microbes that grow when there's no food present, and mm-hmm. they'll like feed on the mucus lining of the gut and stuff like that. So to have a diverse, balanced microbiome, we also have to have moments where we're fasting as well. Right. So yeah. mostly it's just about eating like out. a rainbow. It's also about not eating sometimes, which right. is exactly how we evolved if you think about it too. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Interesting. Which so means, I interrupted like, your... Eat all your Cinnabon on Sunday and, then eat all <laughs> right. and the next Sunday have as much Cinnabon as possible. No. That's like the Tim Ferriss like, approach though. Yeah, no, no. Well, like, I was going to ask, do you have like your indulgence as Cinnabon? Cinnabon. It yeah. is? No, I, Cinnabon that was my high school indulgence. Domino Cinestix. Like, oh my I, God. I, I, wait, 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 Domino Cinestix? Absolutely. <laughs> it's spelled S-I-N? S-T-I-X, I believe? S-C-I-N-N-A-S-T-I-X. No, but I think it should be S-I-N-O-S-T-I-X. Okay, but here's the thing. Just hold on. No judgment. I just like to know. Yeah. So, multi-million dollar company, 
My, bun. No, my company. Yeah. Okay. okay. For multiple years, I've traveled all over the world. Yeah. I fly first class, blah, 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 blah. I've had all the fancy smanchy bullshit. I'm from Kansas. Yeah. You don't okay. need to explain your sentence. You just can't take the Midwest out of the game. Listen, no. man, I'm from okay. Pennsylvania. What's my excuse? Yeah. I mean, I'm just Pennsylvania, saying, like, I, guess. I would rather have like a shitty, like store bought butter cake for my birthday than yeah. some fancy schmancy whatever. Me too. Right. Like, store bought butter cake is way just better. Can't by the way, not, I don't know. I just like that's how <laughs> Listen, I was raised. That's know? just that doesn't go away. That's I been like imprinted it. on your nervous system. Yeah, and there's no like avocado that replaces it. I don't <laughs> no, care. If there isn't cow into it or whatever. I know. That is, is, is and it turns this. out to be like eight million calories. It's just like a dense pack of like <laughs> mushed up avocado and like cashews. And yeah, yeah and you know, exactly. This doesn't coconut. It's not doing much better. It doesn't taste like that. Um, yeah, it's like ravioli does not taste like ravioli. No, it's still not gonna. It's not gonna touch your ravioli nerve if you need to yeah. need it to be touched. So, right. Um, anyway, yeah. But the answer is to just go to Europe and have the healthy pasta and sure. eating it here. You know, the healthy bread, just right? The healthy gluten. You know? Yeah, it is better. What else do we need to cover? Because I feel like there's so many more I know, questions that it, we're running it, out of time. What have we not? I was gonna say, about what do you, you like to be asked, like to. or what do you wish that people asked you more? I don't know. I'm. I'm so here's the thing about trauma, right? It's kind of like, well, I know, we're, so we're good on dairy. So it's kind of like butter. It can go with anything, <laughs> almost, right? right? So I just like to make it the conversation available to what you guys are interested in. And I love talking about the conversation in the context of health because it's so correlated, especially. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I just, I'm an open book. So I'll talk about anything and everything. And I'm here letting you guys kind of guide the conversation. I don't yeah. have a like, a, well, we got to talk about this. Just cool. making sure that we've covered the basis. We can yeah. talk about the president. I don't know. <laughs> Do you want to? How we're all traumatized we as a nation? About that, you know? Sure. <laughs> Listen, we've usually, not intentionally, but we've managed to steer pretty clear of politics this oh, entire okay. time. Yeah. But yeah. I think maybe you should, um, Well, you know. he needs obviously a green juice. Uh, that's <laughs> you know what it's actually very true, right? What would happen to Trump's disposition if we just like he overhauled his diet? If he ate green for one day, rage. yeah, yeah. all the candida would just rage inside yeah. there. Um, no, I think what's happening with Donald Trump uh, is a symptom of a much deeper issue, and what's up right now is our trauma. So the Me Too movement, I don't think would have happened the way it happened under a Hillary Clinton, Clinton presidency. No. I don't think that would have happened that no way. way. And you look at all the white supremacy conversations starting to happen, right? Like, we haven't really talked about that as this generation. Like, to me, like the mm-hmm. Ku Klux Klan was something that was like in black and white photos from a long time right. ago. And the Nazis were something that was also from a long time ago. And now they're here. And I think we're really good to ask the question, like, who are we as a country? But the real issue is, what's the trauma that's causing this? And there are some traumas that have to be acknowledged. And I think that's what's happening right now, is we're starting to have a deeper conversation about what is it like to be a woman in America today? Mm-hmm. It is very interesting that it's all happened in the past couple of years under the, you know. Well, I think if we're talking about you find a a silver lining, if we have to find one in him, it's that this he has actually catalyzed these conversations that, to your point, would not have taken place under Hillary Clinton because we would have continued this sort of, you know, fantasy that we're everything's good and we're all good. And after Barack Obama, you know, we don't have to do any more. Like we've done so much work. Right. And this is really just exposing how much I, work is still that's there. That's the only way that I can look at it because that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm it, it's just there's a utility and a purpose to that. And sometimes if you look at someone who's getting sober, they have to go through some hard stuff to really go, wow. Because like pre-Trump, even the conversation around trauma, no one was really interested in it. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as Trump got elected and then the Me Too stuff started to happen, I started getting phone calls. What's trauma? 
So I think the public's interest in this conversation has expanded tremendously Mm -hmm. because it explains what's going on. Like, what the fuck is going on today? Right. It's a trauma, which doesn't mean it's okay, right? But like, we haven't reconciled the fact that like, we still have significant, not just racism. See, racism is one thing. We have an economic need to be racist in our country because that's how we were founded. Right. Right. Same thing with women. There has been an economic need for women to be one down to men. That's what made America rich in the right. beginning, right? And you know, there's a bunch of revenue-based financing companies that are out there now that like finance startups. It's non-dilutive funding. Trust me, this is gonna make sense in a second. And one of them is called ClearBank. They're a partner of ours. And I love ClearBank because they look at your data, your sales, like how much money comes in every month, how much money goes out every month. And based on that, they're gonna finance you X amount to grow. And what's amazing, because they only focus on data, they found, they funded 10 times more female and minority entrepreneurs than like standard funding sources. What's the name it's of that? ClearBank. <laughs> C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C, right? And so like, that's awesome, right? But that wouldn't have happened before. Right. Does that make sense? Sure. Right? And so like, there's a whole new sort of conversation that's starting to emerge. And I hesitate to call it a silver lining because I can't find things that are too good about that guy. It's, it's hard to find it. But what I can tell you is all these other things as a result, like how other people are responding as a result to that mm-hmm. is very inspiring. It's almost like antibodies kicking in when there's a virus that's taking over, right? right? And you are seeing a new wave of feminism, feminism mm-hmm. that's not just anti-man, mm-hmm. right? It's not, that's not what it's about. It's being embraced more by men. And you're starting to have a more honest conversation about white privilege mm-hmm. and these types of things. So I think there is a healthy response that's happening. I can't say that Donald Trump is the reason why. Let's celebrate that guy. But the people who are responding, the way they're responding is huge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's literally like 2016. we just hit rock bottom. Yeah. Exactly. This is a rock bottom response. Exactly. Across the board. It's yeah. kind of insane. And for anyone and who has not read that New York Times piece about the the anniversary oh, yeah, slavery. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my God, it's just like incredible. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Chris, my friend, you guys know Chris Carr? You guys know Chris yeah. Carr? Yeah. I love Chris. So she's, a friend, of, yeah, she's <laughs> a friend. And it's kind of like her cancer. She's just what she said about her cancer. She goes, I wouldn't call my cancer a gift because right. I wouldn't want to give it to you. Right. But it has been a teacher. And I would probably say the same thing about Trump. Sure. Right. I wouldn't say he's a gift. I wouldn't want to give him away at a Christmas thing, but it was maybe one person right. rather than Cole, right? Right. But, But there has been a lesson in it that we're starting to learn. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's time for those sort of white patriarchy as it is to kind of dissolve because it doesn't have a purpose. Yeah. It's just old. Right. And all those old survival patterns and stuff like that are just like holding on, but it's going to break because it is. (laughs) Right. Well, I think, again, it's, I mean, silver lining is certainly the wrong term, but it's a catalyst for healing. Right. Yeah. I have a very hard time giving him any credit. Oh, no, I agree. I totally yeah. agree. <laughs> no. But, you know, if, we're, if this is going to be what, what lets the healing begin. Yeah. Interesting, by the way, that Trump and trauma look very similar as words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's, huh? a lot of trauma. Hey, there's a lot of Trump trauma, I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> Trump. So, needless to say, Elizabeth Warren. Yay! <laughs> uh, she's got my vote. I will vote for any, I will vote for anyone almost else. Like Mitt Romney. I mean, even if it's even if it's a Republican, anyone, oh, God, yeah. anyone, yeah, right? anyone. Of course, yes, I would love to have Elizabeth in there, right, or Bernie or someone, yeah. but like you know, like Marianne, whoever. But as long as it's just not as him, as long as it's right. Mike Pence, you know, like, geez, you know, someone. Oh, God. Right? I'm like, <laughs> like, like at this point, it's, it's like, the double I'd that you know. Have, I'd rather have like like one sword stabbing me than thirty. Right. You know? Sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh God! All these little uh, what do you call it? Micro traumas. I know. Death right? by a thousand cuts. Yeah. It really is. It, it, see, oh, you. So you talk about micro 
trauma, right? And how it oh, yeah. does have this healing effect. Well, that's, I mean, that just comes straight out of like hypertrophy, right? Right, so that's like acupuncture. Like muscle, yeah. Right? Yes. Hypertrophy right. is this microtrauma that you heal. That's what called lifting weights is. Yeah. Right? You go lift weights, you create microtrauma, and then you heal from it. Right. And you get stronger in the rest period, not when you're actually at the gym. Right. right. So tr- I think Trump oh, has created all these microtraumas. He's sort of amazing. like acupuncture. He's been needling us in all these different areas. And finally, we've all like been woke all of a sudden. Yeah. We're just our muscles has, are healing and we're getting fucking stronger. Yeah, yes. we got we were torn. We're in yeah. cut mode. And, and also like I think it was like Chris Rock or someone was talking about how like presidential elections are kind of like a, your dating history. And he's like, think about it. We had this really kind of boring, monogamous, committed <laughs> relationship. Not too much happened. And we're like, let's go for the crazy prostitute and see what happens. Let's yeah, have right. for a couple of years. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Just kidding, guys. Let's yeah. not go there anymore. Let's go back over here again. Yeah. <laughs> that was really funny. Totally. <laughs> just like dip your toe in it. <laughs> let's just enough. mess it up. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, all right. Well, God, we could really just go on. It's okay. so nice to talk to you. I know. It's nice to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, you guys too. It's, it's a lot of fun. We, uh, do have we are out of time we are oh, we are solid hour but wow. um this has been super informative and exciting and i'm very very much looking forward to sharing this because yeah, i think I there's wait. there's really something in your work i think that is meaningful to oh, everybody depending awesome. i mean it doesn't matter kind of what what side of the table you're you're looking at it from so that's awesome thanks congratulations to thank you, you. And oh, best of luck with next yeah, things and please come thanks. back and let's I will. talk about it some more let's do it maybe yes. in 2020 okay we'll do it <laughs> Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.